Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome to church today. My name is Matt. Uh, we're in this series in the book of Revelation. We're over halfway now. I hope you've been enjoying it. I hope it's made a book that might seem at the start to be very confusing and full of all these images, a little bit more uh, able to dig into it and to, to hear what it has to say to us. Now, um, this might sound a little bit strange, uh, but and you might not have picked up as it, on it as Em was reading it, but today is actually about Christmas. Did you notice that in the story? Uh, now, when you think about Christmas from a, at least from a biblical perspective, uh, what do you think about? Do you think about Mary and Joseph or uh, the three wise men? It what, never says there was three, by the way. It says there was three gifts. doesn't say how many wise men there were. What about the manger? What about baby Jesus? I hope you, hope you think about baby Jesus when you think about Christmas. But have you, have you ever thought about the place of Satan in the Christmas story? Bit of a downer, really, isn't it, to talk about Satan when we're talking about Christmas. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who is uh, the author of The Message, which is a para, uh, para translation of the Bible, he says this about, about our passage. He says, It is John's spirit-appointed task to supplement the work of Matthew and Luke so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness, nor domesticated into worldliness, this is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil. Evil knows what this birth means. In other words, there's more going on at the birth of Jesus than we can see. And what the book of Revelation does is it lifts the curtain on the spiritual realities that are taking place in the world. Now, that's what the, what, what the word revelation means. Uh, it's from the Greek word apocalypsis, uh, which in the ancient Greek world was the word that was used for the raising of the curtain in a drama or a play. And so that's what we get here in Revelation. It's God lifting the curtain on history and showing us things that we can't normally see. Our spiritual realities from the vantage point of heaven, giving us a view of heaven of what is actually going on in the world. Now, the Bible makes the, the assumption, and uh, it's an assumption that we don't often share, or even if we do share it, it's something that we often forget. And that is that there is a spiritual realm, that there's more than just the here and now, that there is a spiritual realm, that Satan is real, and that he's seeking to destroy us. That's what today's passage is trying to show us. Now, if you were here last week, what we did is we looked at chapters 8 through to 11. Now, four big chapters filled with all sorts of imagery and details and symbols. And what I was trying to do last week is to zoom out and to show you the big picture of what was going on in those chapters, to, to paint a picture of it instead of zooming in and looking at the individual brush strokes. And the reason I did that is I wanted to model to us how to read Revelation well, because it's, it's, it's really easy to get caught up in all the details and miss the overall picture that is being painted for us. But the image, sorry, the, the details that you see in all those images are still important. And so today in this next section, uh, in chapters 12 to 14, what I want to do is the opposite. I want to today zoom in uh, and look at all those details. And so to do that, uh, we're not going to be able to cover all three of these chapters. In fact, today we're just going to zoom in on chapter 12, and then the rest of the section, 13 and 14, you'll get to look at in your community groups uh, this week, if you're in one. 
And so grab your Bible. Be good to have that open in front of you. Let's jump in and have a look at, at Revelation chapter 12. Now, just before we zoom in, let me give you an overview of what we see in this chapter. Uh, first, in verses 1 to 6, uh, we're given two great signs. Uh, and with these two great signs, we're introduced to three main characters. You have the woman, you have the dragon, and then you have the child that the woman gives birth to. Then in the second half of the passage, in verses uh, 7 to 17, you get two scenes. Uh, the first one takes place in heaven, in verses 7 to 12, and then the second scene is on earth, in verses 13 to 17. So that's the, the overview. Uh, let's zoom in a bit. Now let's have a look at the, the three characters that are described here. Let's start with the woman. And so have a look at from verse 1. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. In verse 2, it goes on to say that she was pregnant, and in verse 5, that she gives birth to a son. So, who is this woman, do you think? Who? Mary. Wrong. <laughs> I set you up for that one, because we talked about Christmas before. That was my initial thought when I, when I read it. I was like, oh yeah, this is talking about Mary, as in the mother of Jesus. That, that, that's wrong. Well, at least sort of. Um, there was a lot more symbolism there, wasn't there? Remember um, that all the symbols we get in Revelation point us back to the Old Testament. Everything that it mentions has come from the Old Testament. And so where do we see images of the sun and the moon and of, of these 12 stars? Well, back in Genesis chapter 37, we meet a guy named Joseph. Now, this is Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph. Uh, and he comes from a line of Jewish people. It starts with Abraham. And so Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons. And one of those 12 sons is Joseph. Now, Joseph has a dream uh, and in that dream, the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to him. And what we find out is that his father is the sun, his mother is the moon, and the 11 stars are his brothers. And so Joseph, being the 12th star, if you zoom back to our passage, well, who is this woman? Who is she symbolic of? Well, it's the nation of Israel, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the woman is the people of God. That's the woman. Next you have the dragon, and we meet him in verse 3. So have a look in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now who's this talking about? Well, this is one of the rare occasions in Revelation where it tells you, which is always a good thing. And so if you go down to uh, verse 9, uh, John says, That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And so who's this dragon that's symbolized here? Well, it's, it's symbolic of the devil, or, or Satan, the ancient serpent that we, we met back in the opening pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 the one who first tempted Adam and Eve to turn against God. Okay, so we've got the woman, which is the people of God. We've got the dragon, which is Satan. Uh, third, we have the child. And so have a look from verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. 
And so we're told this child is a son, he's a male, uh, but he's no ordinary child. Uh, he's going to rule the nations with an iron scepter. And so we need to ask, well, again, where do we see this kind of language in the Old Testament? Now, if you have a Bible open in front of you, you probably have a little footnote that uh, points you back to one of the Psalms, to Psalm uh, 2. Now, this is one of the most referenced parts of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And in Psalm 2, what you have, it's speaking about the Messiah, God's Messiah that he's going to come, that's going to come, the King, uh, who is also going to be the Son of God. And in verse 8 of the psalm, it says that this king, this Messiah, is going to be given the nations as his inheritance, uh, the ends of the earth as his possession. And so this king is going to be the king of kings. He's going to be the king over all kings and over all nations and all people. And then in verse 9, it says that this king will rule them with an iron scepter, which is the same language that we get here in our passage. And so who is this child? Well, it's the one that Psalm 2 points forward to. And all through the New Testament, as Psalm 2 is referenced, it's pointing forward to Jesus, the King, the Messiah who God has sent. And so you have the woman symbolizing the nation of Israel, you have the dragon symbolizing Satan, and you have the child that symbolizes Jesus. There's our characters. Uh, now let's zoom in and have a look at those first two signs that we see in the first half of the passage. Now remember, signs always point beyond themselves to something else. And so let's have a look at the first sign. You see it there in verses 1 and 2. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, what's the sign? Well, it's that she's pregnant, that she's crying out in pain, about to give birth. Now, clearly, Shell and I missed out on this sign when we were pregnant with our second child because I delivered him on our bathroom floor. I've been waiting three years to use that as an illustration, and I finally get to use it. Oh, it feels good to have that weight off me. Ever since I, that happened, everyone was like, that's going to be a great sermon illustration one day. So I don't know if it was, but there you go. Uh, but this sign that you have here of this woman being pregnant, it's symbolic of saying that from the nation of Israel will come this child, this Messiah, the, the king. Now, there is a sense that it is talking about Mary, so you were right sort of before, uh, but it's larger than just Mary here. Uh, it's that from the nation of Israel will finally come the king, the Messiah that they have been waiting for, that was promised. The, the, the nation is pregnant with anticipation. So that's the first sign that you get. There's the long-awaited Messiah is about to be born. But then there's a second sign, uh, and you get that with the dragon entering the scene which is Satan, and you, you see that in verse 3, and he's powerful. So verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Now, heads are symbolic of authority, and seven is the number of completion, but the authority that this dragon this has been given has come from God, and it's only for a limited time. Horns are symbolic of power, and he's got ten horns, so he's really powerful. 
Red is the color of strife and violence, and so he's, he's full of violence, uh, and he's enormous. And so the picture you're given here, this symbolic picture, is meant to be terrifying. It's a picture of Satan, and we're meant to be terrified as we, see, we read it. It's the one to whom the Apostle Paul calls the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. And then in verse 4, we're told that its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, last week in chapter 9, we read about a star falling from heaven, and I said that that was Satan. Uh, this week, we read about uh, Satan flinging a third of the stars from heaven. Now, what's that talking about? Well, I think that's talking about uh, the demons that uh, Satan took with him in rebellion against God. But it's what the dragon does next is what the focus is on here. And you see that in the second half of verse 4. It says, The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. Now, what isn't happening here is that Satan is at the manger on the night before Christmas with all the other animals waiting for Mary to give birth so that he can devour this child. Now, none of you have that character in your nativity scene, do you? <laughs> Although that would probably make it a bit more interesting, wouldn't it? Maybe you should get one and get a little Satan in the picture. No. Again, it's symbolic. This is symbolic language. What is going on is that Satan knows his Bible. He knows the promises. He knows the prophecies about the coming of this Messiah from Israel that's going to come and conquer him. All of which started with the curse that was given to Satan back in Genesis 3. That one of the offspring of the woman would crush his head. And so he's been waiting and watching for the signs that this child has come. So that he could devour him. Now we know from history that there was an attempt at the life of Jesus when he was a baby. And so King Herod uh, was king over the Jewish people at the time when Jesus was born. Now he was, he'd been on the throne for about 20 or so years by this time and he was getting old and paranoid that someone was going to come and take his throne from him. He'd even killed many of his own family members because he thought that they were trying to take his throne. And what we read in the scriptures in the Gospel of Matthew uh, is that um, as he read the scriptures, that is Herod, he saw in there uh, that God was going to establish a king. And so he went to the chief priests, he went to the, the teachers of the law, and he asked, where is this Messiah, this king, going to be born? And they said, well, the scriptures say that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod sent out these wise men to go to find this baby, to go and find Jesus. But they realized that Herod was up to no good. And when they met Jesus, they didn't go back to him and tell him where this baby was. In fact, they just went off back to their homes. Now, Herod got furious with this, and he ordered that every male child in that region of Bethlehem was to be killed. Now, this is a real historical event. Uh, you can Google it and see it for yourself. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. This happened in history. Now, that's brutal stuff 
from a deranged and paranoid king. But what we see here as we read of these events and as we see Revelation chapter 12, the the curtain is lifted for us and we see that there's more going on in these events. What look like just ordinary events of a deranged king, we see behind that to see a heavenly perspective of what's really going on. That Satan was using Herod as he sought to devour God's Messiah, the one who had come to crush him. That behind these events was a satanic force, an evil force, seeking to do his will. But Satan's plan doesn't work. In verse 5, it says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now that phrase, and a child was snatched up to God and to his throne, it's a very short phrase, but it's fast-forwarding through all of Jesus' life. It's speaking about his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension back to God. In other words, Satan didn't manage to ruin God's plan. He tried it at the birth with Herod. He tried it himself in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He tried it through one of Jesus' disciples, Judas. He even tried it at the cross where it looked, at least for a moment, like the evil forces of Satan had prevailed as Jesus was hanging on the cross. But even that was part of God's plan. And all Satan did was help him to fulfill it. What you get in verse 5 is from the birth all the way through to the ascension back to the right hand of God. Then you get verse 6. It says, The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, it's taken me a while to work out what's going on here, but here's my best attempt. Uh, What does the wilderness represent? Well, in the Bible, the wilderness seems to represent two things. First, it's a place where God's people flee to escape. And so Israel fled from Egypt and went to the wilderness. And there's other accounts in the Old Testament where prophets flee from the persecution and and flee to the wilderness where they're protected by God. But the wilderness also seems to represent a place of testing. And so... For example, the Israelites, they're in the wilderness for 40 years being tested by God. Or Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Uh, More than than that, it says for 1,260 days. Now, last week we looked at what does that mean? Uh, uh, 1,260 days is three and a half years, which in the symbolic language of Revelation is half of seven, which is talking about an incomplete period of time. And all the way through the book of Revelation, it's always talking about the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And so if you put all that together, it seems as if verse 6 is a reference to the fact that God's people will both be taken care of and yet at the same time face trials and testing in the time between Jesus' first coming and his return. Okay, that's the three characters. That's the first two signs in the first half of this chapter. And I hope what you can see is that I was trying to model how to Uh, zoom in on all those images and those symbols to see what's going on, to go back to the Old Testament to see where they've come from 
to look at them and then see, well, what is John saying when he uses those? Now, you guys can do that for yourself. You can do that at home when you read the Bible for yourself. You can do that in your community group this week as you dig in to the details of chapters 13 and 14. Now, let's move on to the second half of the chapter. This will go a bit faster. And here we're given two scenes, and these two scenes are filled with all sorts of action. Uh, The first scene takes place in heaven, and then the, the last scene will take place here on earth, and we'll spend more time on the first one than the second one. So... Let's, let's have a look. Go from verse 7. It says, Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. What we get here is a pulling back of the curtain in heaven. We're given a glimpse into what is happening in heaven at the defeat of Satan. There's this great battle between the archangel Michael with his angels and Satan with his demons. But even though Satan is the great dragon, the great and powerful dragon, he is not strong enough. I like how the ESV translates it. It says, he was defeated. There was no longer any place left for them in heaven. Now, why is that? Well, you get the answer in the celebration that comes in verse 10. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Do you know Satan has two great powers? And it's important that we're aware of them. The first one we saw in chapter, uh, sorry, in verse 9, where it says Satan is the one who leads the whole world astray, that he's the deceiver. He's the liar. He lies to us, and he's trying to get us to believe his lies. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. That's what he does with all of us. But he has another great power, and that's accusation. You see that in verse 10? It says, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night. The word Satan literally means slanderer. That what Satan has been doing ever since the fall is accusing God's people day and night. You get a glimpse of what this looks like in a bunch of places in the Old Testament. One of those is in the book of Job, if you know the book of Job. What you get there is almost like a a heavenly courtroom and Satan coming before God and accusing Job. It's like he's a prosecutor in a court case and he accuses us before God. And he'll say things like, God, you're holy and just, so you must condemn Matt. Have you seen what he's done? Have you seen the things that he's done, the things that he's thought? Have you the things that he should have done, but he hasn't done? You must condemn him to hell. That's what Satan does, day and night. But not anymore. Because verse 10, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled 
down. The word there is thrown down, as if he's been thrown out of a pub like a drunken fool. It's repeated so many times that our translations don't even add them all in. In the four verses here, five times it says that Satan was hurled down. It's as if John has gone out of his way to say it. He's been hurled down. He's been, hurled down. He's been thrown out of heaven. He can no longer accuse you before God. He's lost his power. But why is that? Well, verse 11 says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is the, the Lamb of God that we saw back in, a few weeks ago in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 9, it said about Jesus, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, the word there for purchase, purchased is the word redeem. It's the ransom price that needs to be paid to free someone. And it's a price that none of us could ever afford. The price that was needed was the most precious thing in the universe. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, when it says blood, it's symbolic of death. That blood represents death and sacrifice. It's not like there's some magical power in the blood itself. It's what it represents, which is the death of Christ that triumphed over Satan. And so Satan has nothing left to accuse us of. For everyone whose trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, your debt has been paid once and for all. The sacrifice of the lamb who was slain has cleansed you of your sin. It's taken away your guilt and your shame and made you pure and perfect before your God. And so Satan has been hurled down, thrown out of heaven once and for all. He's been told, and I use this word deliberately, get the hell out. And so you get this song of rejoicing from heaven in verse 12. It says, therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And it's at this point that the scene changes from heaven now to earth. And so have a look at verse 13. It says, When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman he had given, that had given birth to the male child. When Satan is thrown out of heaven to earth, he goes after the woman. Now, what does the woman say, um, represent? What's the people of God? And then you see it again in verse uh, 17. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. What you get here is a picture of Satan who is seeking to wage war against God's people. It, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, you have an enemy that is seeking to wage war against you seeking to destroy your faith, seeking to pursue you. And how does he do that? Well, he does the same things that he did in heaven. Whereas before he went to God and accused you before God, he can't do that anymore. He's been thrown out of heaven. So what does he do? Well, he comes to you and accuses you. 
He'll say things like, you're not good enough for God. How could you be good enough for God? Look at all you've done. Look at all of your sin. How could God still love you? Or maybe he'll say something like, you think you can pray? You think God's going to listen to what you say? You keep doing that same sin over and over again. He's not listening to you. Or maybe you'll say something like, you can't understand the Bible. Why do you even try? Or, you can't go to church. If they knew the sorts of things that you had done, they'd never accept you. You'll be fine without it. Don't go to church. Don't go to community group. Do you ever believe the lies of Satan? Do you ever believe the things that he whispers to you, the accusations that he levels against you? Because he's good at it. He's been doing it for a long time. And if he can get you to believe the lie that your sin separates you from God, well, then he's won. If he can get you to stop reading your Bible, get you to stop reading your Bible, stop praying, stop meeting together as God's people, stop listening to sermons, and start getting you to compromise on your faith and give in to the things of this world, then he's won. For a limited time, until Jesus returns, Satan has been cast out of heaven to earth and he's filled with fury and he's trying to do whatever he can to cause us uh, to have our faith destroyed or at the very least to make us apathetic towards the things of God. And so how is it that we are to triumph over Satan? Well, you saw it in verse 11. It says, they, that, that's us, the people of God, triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. As Satan accuses you, how do you triumph over him? Well, you preach the gospel, don't you? You that's what it means when it says the word of their testimony. You preach the gospel to yourself. You say things like Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, there is no accusation that Satan can make against you. He has been thrown out of heaven. Jesus has dealt with your sin once and for all. We have triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And so... Hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. Hold fast to the gospel of God's grace so that we wouldn't love our lives so much as to shrink from death, that we would be willing to die rather than give in to Satan and his lies. That's what you see in the next two chapters, that Satan does everything he can to try and deceive God's people. Grace City, Satan is real. There is a spiritual realm, and he is seeking to destroy us, to destroy our faith. But if you are in Christ, you have triumphed over him in Jesus. And so let me finish with some of the words of one of the songs that we're about to sing. We're about to sing some songs that are going to preach the gospel to ourselves. And these, songs, these words are so helpful. It says, When Satan tempts me to despair... And tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul was counted free. 
for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we look at Revelation 12, you lift the curtain and show us the true spiritual reality of what is taking place in this world, that Satan is seeking to destroy your people. But Father, we thank you that through your Son, the Lamb of God, you have triumphed over him, that you have taken away his power to accuse your people, that you have taken away our sin, so there is no accusations left. Father, I pray that you would help us not to believe the, the lies of Satan, but to triumph over him through the blood of the Lamb. Lord, would you remind us of your great gospel of grace? Would you remind us that we have triumphed, not because of anything that we have done, but because what you have done for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray this all in his name. Amen.